Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. This is a super special show tonight. Uh, the, the listeners let us know how much they like our history shows with or without aliens. Um, tom- uh, tonight is just regular history. Tomorrow at noon Eastern, uh, Barbara and Andrew Collins will be discussing his new book on the first female pharaoh. Um, most of our shows are reviews of books we enjoy, and both of us have authors return to our shows over our you know, dozen years of uh, broadcasting, and we're friends with the authors. Uh, but you know, r- rarely do hosts get a chance to interview authors of their favorite book. Uh, No, Poe and Dickens aren't guests tonight, but we do have Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Lothorpe, uh, Lisa Dugas, and John Bolid uh, all did contribute to my my favorite book, and title is. Panhandle Archaic Americans in the Upper Ohio Valley Archaeological Data Recovery at the East Steubenville and Highland Hills Sites, West Virginia Route 2, Fallens B. Weirton Road Upgrade Project, Brook County, West Virginia. Um, and they all worked on the this fascinating East Steubenville dig about 20 years ago and went on to have stellar careers in archaeology. And they've also been very supportive in a collaborative project I've been doing 
with several local museums, and I, you know, I think they're just a terrific, uh, you know, researchers and scholars. Um, you know, they've really meant a lot to me. So it, it's really fantastic to have them uh, here on Nightlight. So, you know, I just want to introduce Jonathan, John, and Lisa. Say hi to everyone. Good evening. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hi. <laughs> okay. And, okay, uh, Jonathan is a curator of archaeology at the New York State Museum in Albany and has many publications on the Paleo-Indians in archaic cultures, uh, and he was the principal investigator of the East Steubenville and Highland Hills sites. Lisa is the uh, division leader for cultural resources for the Big Pine Consultants in Pittsburgh, and John is an archaeologist with the Ohio Department of Natural Resources in the Village Blacksmith at Fort Steuben, Steubenville, Ohio. And John was on WTOV last week and now making his debut on Nightlight. So he's becoming a multimedia superstar. So Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we don't need to hear about the Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, recounted, but uh, but uh, okay, maybe we should uh, start with Jonathan. May um, have like four questions, all kind of like rolled into one that could kind of get us started on. So many aspects of um, archaeology um, and you know, what it takes to uh, work on a dig and have have a, uh, a career as an archaeologist. So, uh, um, okay. Aside from being really good at what you do, how did you get the East Steubenville job. How did how did do you begin assembling your uh, various crews, like you know, in the field, in the lab, you know, writing, uh, dealing with the previous excavations, and why is the East Steubenville site a textbook case for how to conduct a dig? Well, that's a, that's a bunch of questions, uh, Mark, and I'll, I'll try to answer them. So uh, just a we little background hours. to this. Uh, there are <laughs> environmental laws that were passed back in the 1960s and 70s that led to the uh, uh, – for requiring projects that have federal oversight or federal funding to take into account effects on – uh, both environmental resources like wetlands, but also uh, important cultural resources like archaeological sites or significant uh, architectural buildings and so forth. And so that was the legal framework that drove this work. And this particular project uh, 
um, the work took place back in the uh, the archaeological work took place back in the uh, around 1998-99-2000 and West Virginia Division of Highways was planning to upgrade uh, Route 2 which runs along the east side of the Ohio River in the vicinity of uh, the city of Steubenville and it was known from previous work by an archaeologist, William Meyer Oakes, who published his research back in the mid-1950s, that there was a, an important and, and significant site called East Steubenville on a ridgetop just above Route 2. And the plans called for, uh, in expanding that road, it was going to necessarily um, eliminate uh, the, the archaeological site. And so they went through a process working with the State Historic Preservation Office, the Division of Highways, to um, confirming what was there. And, and some initial testing by a consultant indicated that there were two sites uh, on a ridgetop overlooking Route 2. It's called McKim Ridge. And there were two sites, East Steubenville and then just to the north of that, another site called Highland Hills. And in 1999, uh, the Division of Highways asked the company that all three of us, Lisa, John Bullage, and myself worked for at the time, GAI Consultants, which is based in Pittsburgh, they asked us to mitigate the effects of the construction that was going to essentially destroy the site by conducting a focused investigation there to recover artifacts and archaeological uh, materials from the site before it was destroyed and then analyze that material, pr produce a report, and then ultimately send the archaeological uh, materials uh, to uh, Gray Creek Mound, which is a state repository for West Virginia. And so um, we knew that this was a, a major site, and just in a nutshell, it consists, the Steubenville site consists of a, uh, what's called a shell midden site, where one of the most obvious features of this site, which is just below the surface, is the remains of freshwater mussels, which were collected in the river four to 5,000 years ago, carried up up this uh, steep ridge spur to the site and cooked cooked and consumed there uh, during uh, a number of encampments by uh, these early Native Americans who were living in the upper Ohio Valley five to 4,000 years ago. Uh, and so we, we knew that was uh, an extensive and important site. We also knew there was another site just north of it, and I said the uh, Highland Hill site. And so we pulled together a team of uh, archaeologists and field technicians and other specialists that uh, we thought we would likely need their assistance on in analyzing all the archaeological materials that we expected to come out of the site that reflected the lifeway of these uh, people who were uh, seasonally camping at this ridge first setting overlooking the Ohio River. So stone tools of various types uh, food remains, animal bones, shellfish, uh, uh, plant remains, and so forth, uh, and and other specialist analysts who are going to 
study those materials and, and help us uh, understand and interpret those remains. So in a nutshell, that's how we ended up uh, assembling and, and starting this project that the fieldwork began in the fall of uh, 1999 and continued uh, through the uh, fall of uh, 2020. Okay, and you met with um, William Meyer Oaks as well and, and worked with the Carnegie Museums. Yeah, that was um, what the major uh, museum in the area. So, yeah. Uh, so, Jonathan, you're dealing with um, th them. It seems like on a regular basis. Well, I didn't. I didn't meet with William Meyer Oaks uh, initially. I did meet him later. Uh, oh, okay. And William Meyer Oaks was a, a very important archaeologist who worked all over North America and Canada. And one of his first jobs after the war was to work at the Carnegie Museum. And that's when he uh, did his excavations at various sites, not at East Steubenville, but he knew about the East Steubenville site from artifacts that avocational archaeologists had picked up on the site uh, through their own, through their own uh, informal excavations. And so he really was the first person to try and understand the uh, long uh, human history of Native American occupation in the Upper High Valley, and he published a book in 1995 called The Prehistory of the Upper Ohio Valley. And in there, he talked about the East Steubenville site and had some very perceptive uh, insights and interpretations on the site. Uh, but he wrote about the whole uh, span of Native American prehistory in the Upper Ohio Valley from 13 to 12,000 years ago up up until uh, uh, the contact of uh, indigenous peoples with uh, colonizing European populations. Um, and and um, so he kind of laid the groundwork really for every archaeologist to work in the Upper Ohio Valley since then. The Carnegie Museum was his employer for about 15 years, I believe, before he then went off uh, to work in, in, in Canada. Uh, and so that, that's the key role that the Carnegie played in, in this investigation. Okay. It, um, John, you, you were there for uh, basically the full year that the excavations were going on. Um, you know, you're uh, you know finding some, you know the various arrowheads. Um, you, what are you learning about the people, the people who were living on this um, unusual hillside? Well, that's 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 a big question. I'll, I'll start with just talking a little bit about how we approached our investigation. So, we knew that on this ridge spur that runs north south, 
overlooking the Ohio, uh, the Ohio River, and the Ridge Spur is about 250 to 300 feet above the river. Uh, so it's a very commanding view of the location. We knew we had two large sites there, but we needed, we started out, we needed more detail on the extent uh, and position of these two sites. And each of them is a, consisted of a near surface distribution of Native American artifacts and food refuse and so forth. And so what we did was we did a series of uh, close interval small tests called shovel tests uh, about every uh, uh, 50 feet across this uh, ridge spur landform. And what that showed was that these, these two sites were extremely large. Highland Hills was situated further north and East Steubenville was situated further south on the south end of this ridge spur. Both of these sites were roughly two football fields in length. Uh, so these are very large sites, and that's part of the reason the investigation took so long as the sites themselves were so extensive. But once we had a sense of the limits of each of these sites, and they were really right next to each other, one uh, further north, the second one, East Steubenville further south, and we had a sense of the internal distribution generally of artifacts, and that's when we started opening up uh, block excavations to more intensively sample the archaeological material that was there. We started recovering a range of stone tools, the projectile points that these people used, which were of two types, uh, one's called Brewerton points and one's called Steubenville points, and those date respectively to about Burden points date to about 6,000 to 5,000 years ago, and the Steubenville points date to about uh, 4,500 to 3,500 years ago. And that told us that there was uh, a long history of occupation at this site, perhaps with several centuries of, uh, of the site uh, not being uh, a focus of uh, Native American encampment. And then we began recovering a range of artifacts, other kinds of stone tools made by percussion flaking from shirt cobbles, things like uh, uh, drills for working uh, uh, hide and bone, um, uh, scraping tools, these square scraping tools for working hide, uh, and then a variety of other kinds of stone tools, many of them ground stone tools that were hafted like adzes, adzes and axes and celts for woodworking, uh, and uh, cobble tools which were being used as hammer stones for flaking the chert that they were bringing to the site during the encampment. And then we, we began recovering a whole range of uh, food remains uh, that these people left behind that tell, told us about the diets and the lifeways and how they were literally uh, making a living uh, 5,000 to 6,000 years ago uh, at, in this part of the Upper Ohio Valley. Okay, cool. Uh, okay, we, we got a, a really good background. So I have a question for John Bolidge. Uh, okay, John, so you're uh, there on the hillside and on top of the hill. You know, what are you doing? Are you finding some of the uh, yeah, different types of points 
um, oh. are you helping to identify what types of uh, charts they're uh, yeah, made from? Well, on, on that particular job, uh, I, I was hired as, as crew. So my job at East Steubenville there, uh, I, I came on the job very early on uh, in that initial phase where we did the shovel testing to kind of delineate, you know, the size of the site and where the, the different sites, you know, kind of met and or didn't meet. Uh, you know, so I was I was brought on for that. And then later on, I ended up, uh, like most of the crew there, uh, I ended up you know, spending the, the entire the entire excavation there that, that entire year. Uh, up there, roughly from uh, roughly from Thanksgiving to Thanksgiving, uh, you know. So it was kind of interesting, as a side note, to spend all four seasons up there on that that ridge, just to kind of get an idea of what some of those prehistoric people might have gone through uh, as well during the seasons. But that's kind of another story. But, so that's that's pretty much my job there. I was uh, I was a, a crew member, and and uh, like I said, uh, shovel testing initially, and then uh, some of those test unit excavations and. and Excavations uh, was was what I was what I was doing there. Had, had, had you been uh, really interested in archaeology uh, prior uh, to this experience, or you were just getting your you know, feet wet at East Steubenville? I had been very interested in archaeology. In fact, in the 1980s, early 1980. Uh, University of Steubenville at the time actually conducted field schools there. Field schools there, and I volunteered uh -huh. as a, as a uh, uh, I think I was 10 or 12 uh, year old uh, there. So I actually had a little bit of experience at East Steubenville prior to going back there, uh, you know, and, and working, uh, working in, a, in a much more detailed fashion. So I was uh, I was really excited about that. I got to work there as a volunteer as a kid. Uh, my interest in archaeology continued and grew, and eventually I got to go back there as uh, you know, as as an, as an archaeologist, and and got to work there. So it was kind of a, for me personally, it was an interesting sort of full circle, uh, you know, full circle sort of experience for me. Okay, and Lisa, so, uh, uh, Jonathan uh, mentioned. Yeah, the shell midden. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. Can Can you give? You know, you're the one of the shell experts there. Can Can, can you uh, d describe uh, a, a little bit about the the midden and all the types of shells? That seems like it's. Was the most uh, salient feature of the site? Yeah, the mitten was pretty extensive. Um, so while we were there, we excavating, we identified kind of the limit of the shell midden, which was essentially it essentially flanked the site on the side ridges. And um, there were some really extensive deposits, and we um, identified separate lenses. There were all, there was also a good bit of looting up there, so we had 
a bit of disturbance from the looters that disrupted the the midden feature as a whole. Um, but while we were excavating there, we identified these large pit features inside the midden um, that were just packed with shell. And whenever we had those features, we collected the shell from those deposits um, to take back and analyze uh, in the lab. And while I was, I was doing the shell analysis back in the lab, after the excavations were complete, and um, it was really very interesting because there was a lot of just broken bits of shell, but in the features, there was more intact, like whole pieces of freshwater mussel shell. So we were able to identify, um, I think we identified 17 different species, but there were two that were like, that dominated the entire collection, and that was the elliptiodilatata, um, which is the spike, commonly called the spike, and the elliptiocaracidans, and that one's called the elephant ear. Um, and those shell, you can still find them in the Ohio River, those, those types of freshwater mussels. They're still uh, present in the river. Um, so we found those, and um, we learned a lot from them because we were able to do some habitat reconstruction to kind of identify where we thought they were coming from in the Ohio River and um, at what time they were likely being harvested. So we learned a lot about the relationship that the people at the site had with the freshwater mussels, like how, how important it was for their life. Okay, so you know, basically they're having clam bakes. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty, yeah, they're okay. collecting these shell. They're going down to the Ohio River at the um, confluence of Mahan Run, I think it is, and um, okay. in like a fast, swift water area, but relatively shallow. And they're going out and they're collecting them and they're taking them all the way back up the hill. I think it's it's a pretty steep incline to <laughs> climb that hill with, uh, you know, I would imagine basketfuls or bagfuls of freshwater mussel. And then they're um, baking them in, in these large pits. Um, we also did some experiments up there uh, to kind of replicate what we thought might be happening in terms of how they were processing the freshwater mussels. So we did, um, we created our own pit and we steamed some mussels and then we created a kind of platform hearth uh, where we cooked mussels just straight in the fire. So um, from our experiments, we figured that, yeah, they're definitely, uh, well, they're most likely steaming the freshwater mussels to open them and extract the meat. Okay, did, Lisa, did you cook for the crew in this experiment? <laughs> how, how did – was it delicious, disgusting? Uh, <laughs> um, 
we did not eat them, but <laughs> we did contemplate eating them. Uh, but the folks who collected the shell for us um, from the Ohio River down at the Green Up Pool, which is um, kind of near Point Pleasant um, on the Ohio River, um, they Lost recommended that we – Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Mothman country. They recommended that we don't eat them because they were in a pretty contaminated area. So, yeah, they said it probably wouldn't be a good idea to do that. But we've read historic accounts kind of compared to chewing gum in terms of the texture. So they're supposed to be pretty rubbery. That's it. Joppa, let's come back to uh, you. Uh, so, in several uh, parts of the, the midden, um, there were a few burials found on, like, uh, the, the lower. Uh, two-thirds of the hillside. Um, were you expecting to encounter uh, burials? What, uh, you know, how did the uh, uh, exhumation change how you approached uh, doing this uh, you know, proceeding with the the uh, excavation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, before I uh, talk about that, Mark, I just want to touch base, touch uh, follow up on what Lisa had to say. And the the thing that's perhaps most significant about the East Steubenville site is it's the first, it's not the only evidence, but it's the first identified evidence of a fundamental shift in Native American lifeways in the upper Ohio Valley. We know that uh, Native Americans come into the region shortly after 13,000 years ago uh, during the Ice Age. Uh, they're they're hunter, hunter-gatherers. And after the end of the Ice Age, about 11,500 years ago, ago, they continued that life way until about um, uh, 5,000 years ago or so, when they start to uh, exploit in a significant way the riverine resources of the Ohio River. And that, by, the, by that, I'm talking about both shellfish uh, and fish. And uh, that's a fundamental change in how these people were literally making a living because before that, they were essentially subsisting from 13,000 years ago to perhaps 5,000 years ago. They're subsisting strictly as hunter-gatherers exploiting terrestrial fauna, um, hunting in the Ice Age. They might have been hunting caribou. After the Ice Age, they, might, they were probably hunting deer and uh, deer and elk, um, and uh, gathering wild plant foods. And then 5,000 years ago, there's, a, there's this fundamental shift in their, in their life way they, where they turn towards the river. And that's what's so well documented at the East Steubenville site. And 
Meyer Oaks realized that when he first wrote about the site back in 1955. Um, but the data recovery excavations that we did in 1999 and uh, 2000, Lisa, John, and our other colleagues, uh, that recovered these very large samples of uh, shell from these intact features, as, as Lisa mentioned, that provided the basis for her and her, her colleague Harold Rollins to, from the University of Pittsburgh to study both the habitat um, and, and the uh, uh, procurement of these, these shellfish. And the other thing I just want to point out before turning to the uh, human remains at the site is that the soils in the Upper Ohio Valley are typically acidic, and so that has important repercussions for investigating Native American archaeological sites. And the older the site is in general, the less likely you're, you're going to have preservation of organic uh, artifacts of bone and wood and so forth, but it also means it's less likely that you're going to have preservation of, or, of food remains. Uh, because they're simply destroyed in the acidic soils, but when you have a site with a shell midden on it of discarded freshwater mussel shell, what that does is that shell buffers the acidity in the soil, and you end up with a site like East Steubenville, where um, because of the buffered soil acidity, other kinds of food remains, especially animal bone, are are often very well preserved, and so. There was a whole suite of other kinds of, of uh, food remains, terrestrial food remains in particular, which we can talk about a little later, that were preserved because of the presence of that shell buffering the soil acidity. So in terms turning to the human remains, um, we had been we had been working at the site, I think uh, we had started in October and about a month later, we encountered a Native American burial uh, in a pit on the east side of the uh, ridge flank. And by the end of the field investigation, we'd encountered a total of six uh, Native American burials. And that was, we knew it was a possibility, but we really didn't have any expectation about how likely that would be. And uh, on a project like this, which is, um, as, we, as, as we talked about, is a so-called Section 106 project. It's subject uh, to Section 106 regulations of the National Historic Preservation Act. When you encounter human remains, whether they're believed to be Native American or Euro-American, um, uh, or African-American, whatever the um, uh, human group might be represented, you need to consult with various parties. You start off by consulting with the agency that you're working for, in this case, the Division of Highways, and then you uh, consult with the State Historic Preservation Office in Charleston, and they, when this happened, they then facilitated a process of outreach and consultation with various stakeholders, most of whom were uh, Native American uh, groups in and around West Virginia. Some of, some of these, there are no federally recognized uh, Native American 
nations in West Virginia, but there are Native American groups there, uh, and there are federally recognized tribes outside of West Virginia that claim parts of the state as their homeland, for example, the Eastern Band Cherokee. So that resulted in a lengthy process of consultation to inform them about these discoveries of these uh, Native American remains in these burials and to consult with them about how to best proceed going forward uh, in terms of whether to excavate these and whether or not to analyze them to uh, generate insights on the people themselves and to literally put a face on the people who are living at the Steubenville site. So that's that's how the, the consultation process started, and that took place over perhaps six months, um, and it was a lengthy process that you have to be inclusive in in, in that consultation process, and, and both Division of Highways, the Historic Preservation Office, and our company, GAI, did everything we could to, to do that. Okay. Interesting. Okay, well, uh return to uh, that topic in ju just a minute, but uh, John Bullard, um, you, know, you and I discussed um, you know, the extent of the the uh, looting, uh, you know, this possible 1890s um, The skull exhumation, yeah. The skull, uh, um, but it, 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 yeah, there's uh, you know, uh, really uh, informative, you know, you know, we'll get into the color coded maps later, but you know, it, it really shows that like something like 95% of the Midden had been destroyed, but it, you know, since you had uh, been working there for you know off and on, you know, since childhood, um, is there some way to determine maybe how many people were actually uh, living there, you know, some, you know, we don't, we have, well, maybe six or seven documented examples. The skull might be about eight, um, I, you know, like Jonathan said, you know, maybe if they weren't buried in the shell midden, uh, the soil would have consumed their bodies. Is, is there... Some way to determine how many people might have been living there so uh, for we'll we'll address the the looting issue first okay. uh, you know the East Steubenville site uh, was known at least by by folks in my region and I'm from the Steubenville area the East Steubenville site was known by far and wide by every collector up and down the Ohio Valley and probably as as far east and west as, you know, Columbus, Ohio, and, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, State College, PA. I mean, everybody who had ever 
legally or illegally excavated uh, at archaeological sites has or had artifacts from, from East Steubenville. Most of the local collectors that I have known through the years here from my region have artifacts that, that they claim came from East Steubenville. Now, now, granted, you know, uh, obviously some of them would have probably acquired them in a way that was probably less than reputable. Others uh, may have bought and sold artifacts, but you know, as as time went on, you know, and you get to get to meet some of the, some of the local collectors who are willing to share with you uh, their collections and 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 their some of this information. You know, it was it was fairly apparent that people had been you know, systematically visiting the site and picking up artifacts for a very very long time. I and John may have to correct me on this if I'm not mistaken. That site was first uh, documented or listed what 19 in the 1930s or late 1930s if I'm correct. so people were aware of the site there uh so yes artifacts did did their way off the site and, and one might might wonder as well had, had human uh, remains and burials been, been disturbed and, and Over, over those longer periods of time could, could certainly produce 
that material there. And, and perhaps, you know, we're, we're thinking at it, of it as a different way. You know, uh, these people might not have necessarily been, been staying there that whole time. This might have been a place where a lot of folks came to gather over a short period of time, uh, you know, coming from different locations. So, you know, it, it's very difficult to, to come up with some sort of estimation on how many people were there, although I would certainly say, you know, more than a few, if that helps. Okay. <laughs> okay. John, you That's might good. Yeah, I would. Uh, I just following up. I think what John just said makes a lot of sense. And there's that's that's the thing about archaeology. Sometimes there's you can have different scenarios that end up that produce the same kind of archaeological signature. So it's conceivable that many many people came to the East Steubenville site at uh, at any one given visit or. Alternatively, it could could have been smaller groups of uh, 10 or 12 people, just one extended family even perhaps, uh, coming there. And um, if if 10 or 12 people come to the site and visit it 200 times over several, over several thousand years, that could produce the same archaeological signature as a much larger group of, say, 100 people, uh, seasonally small small bands coming together seasonally into some big macro band encampment uh, could produce the same kind of signature. The, the thing that's, um, that's really can't be questioned is the fact that the site itself is so large, longer than two football fields end to end. That's clear evidence that the site was visited and camped on over and over again many, many times. Um, and so uh, it was a, a clear, clearly an important place for uh, one or several groups of people to come and camp there repeatedly. And so we'll never know how many people were coming, but it's, it's in terms of the landscapes that these people were traversing in their seasonal travels, they were certainly coming there repeatedly many, many times. Okay, Jonathan. So, with you know the, the shell maiden, you know, it kind of uh, uh, harkens back to um, William Webb's. Uh, Excavation of Indian Knoll and you know, the Shell Mound archaic people. Um, what was is? Are we talking about the same group of people in, say, the Green River Valley and at the East Steubenville site, or are we looking at a, a unrelated uh, group of uh, people? I'm sorry, Mark. I I cut out for a second. Can you ask that question again? Um, Doctor Webb wrote about Indian Knoll mm-hmm. and uh, all, all the shell mounds in the Green River Valley. Was the East Steubenville site an extension of the shell mounding culture, or were they? Uh, another group of uh, people? 
Uh, well, they're all Native Americans, and uh, that's okay. that's one of the sixty-four thousand dollar questions: is to what extent are there perhaps cultural links or similarities and lifeways between the people in the Green River region of Kentucky and the Upper Ohio Valley uh, of uh, West West Virginia and Ohio? Um, so. When you talk about the Green River region, that's sort of a subset of a larger group of uh, shell midden sites known as the shell midden or shell mound archaic, uh, and that were occupied. Some of them as early as uh, seven to eight thousand years ago, but and and as late as 3,500 years ago. So those sites, which are also shell midden sites, they began to be occupied by Native Americans uh, along uh, major river courses in the Mid-South region of Kentucky and so forth uh, uh, as early as seven to 8,000 years ago. And there's, there's a question about how similar or different their lifeways were. The traditional interpretation of the shell mound archaic is that it's somewhat similar to how uh, most of us have interpreted the East Steubenville site, that this is a location that was uh, camped on uh, seasonally for, for, many, for several millennia. Um, uh, but there's an archaeologist, uh, Cheryl Classen, who over the last uh, several decades has offered a different interpretation of the Shell Mound Archaic uh, that views them as ceremonial centers. Um, and this stems in part from the fact that the scale of those sites is quite different from East Steubenville. Uh, East Steubenville, the Shell Midden was a few inches thick, and the Shell Middens at these uh, Shell Mound Archaic sites in the Mid-South uh, are sometimes 10 to 20 to 25 feet thick. They're just gigantic uh, uh, accumulations of shell. And uh, Dr. Shaw Klassen has argued uh, in some respects convincingly that what may be going on there is not simple repeated encampment at that lo those locations, but that these are actually ceremonial centers where they're conducting ritual feasting, uh, as a rites of renewal, and that shell itself, in that regard, has important uh, symbolic uh, uh, features in traditional Native American culture. The white color of shell represents purity and rebirth. And <clears throat> so it's, to my, to my thinking, the shell mount archaic is something that's very different in terms of just the scale of the archaeology. They're just gigantic accumulations of shell that are as higher than, uh, thicker than a, a ranch house is high. Um, and the scale of uh, intensity of occupation there is uh, almost certainly much more uh, significantly higher than what we're looking at at East Steubenville and other so-called panhandle archaic sites in northern uh, West Virginia. Um, so that's a larger question. We can we can come back to it further uh, uh, later. But that's there's uh, to my way of thinking, 
with the lifeway that's represented by East Steubenville and other shell midden sites in the Upper Ohio Valley, there's fundamental differences in size and scale that suggest differences in the number of people living at those sites and perhaps differences in what they're using those sites for. Okay. All right. And, um, all right. Lisa, I, I know you uh, wanted to talk about the honor of attending the uh, reburial of the, the six um, uh, people. Uh, can, can, can you uh, elaborate on that uh, service? Sure. The, so as a part of the, the project, we had the opportunity to participate in the reburial of the Native Americans that were um, excavated on, from the site. And they were buried just north on the same, well, not exactly the same landform, but north of where the site was in the same general area. Um, and we got to participate uh, in the in the reburial led by um, Chief Waterman. Uh, he was um, from the Onondaga tribe of the Seneca, or the Onondaga of the Seneca, if that's correct. John, do you remember? Is that right? Uh, Turtle Clan of the Onondaga Nation in central New York. Turtle Clan of, yeah. And it was just an amazing it was amazing to witness, you know, and we were very lucky to be invited as um, the archaeologists and represent, you know, the folks who were out there excavating um, because it was really just a unique experience to be a part of that. Um, Chief Waterman, he made everyone feel very welcome during the ceremony, and I believe his some of his family members were there. Um, and what we what we had done was we prepared the the remains um, and wrapped them in deer skin to give back to the earth, and we put in some of the soil that was excavated from the um, original burial locations as well. So it was amazing to to see that and to be a part of it and to watch the ceremony and to. To just witness that, it was really an honor to be a part of it. Um, and then afterwards, we were all invited to participate in a feast for the dead at the Grave Creek Archaeological Complex, where um, members of Chief Waterman's tribe uh, prepared a meal for us, and we all got to participate in that. It was just great. It was interesting, too, because, you know, the during the, that ceremony, we were separated, like, because it was a, it's a, I don't know, it's like a matrilineal culture, and we were served, the, the women were served before the men, and it was just, like, interesting to see that, like, 
that take place. It was very a neat thing to participate in that kind of cultural event. Lisa, can I mention something too? Yeah, yeah, for sure. sure. You know, what what Lisa was saying uh, is absolutely true. You know, uh, there is oftentimes uh, archaeologists, uh, at least at that time, weren't viewed as good people by most Native American folks. Uh, So the fact that they kind of took us in and invited us back, I mean, it was an incredible honor and it was very sobering uh, to be allowed to participate. And it was, uh, it was, I'm going to use the word very special, at least for myself and Lisa and the other archaeologists who were there, you know, I mean, to, to be allowed to participate. And not only as an anthropologist, something, you know, that you don't experience uh, for man, but as a person, as someone that, you know, we're, we weren't being looked at as archaeologists at that point. We were being looked at as just like them. And it was really, really uh, a, a, a great positive experience. I would agree, and I would just follow up with that. And uh, Chief Waterman really kind of set the tone at that uh, reburial ceremony, and it kind of what, – what I can say is that before that, in the consultation process with these different indigenous groups, uh, the, the the questions being asked were, what should we do about these burials? Uh, should they be uh, uh, disinterred? Uh, and once and if they were disinterred, should they be studied? And there's there was a whole range of opinions from the various uh, Native American groups on that. Division of Highways, as the lead agency, said. Look, the only way we could leave these burials in place is to not build a project, and this was viewed as a critical transportation need in that as a, a Route 2 being a key corridor in the upper Ohio Valley. And so really the only option was to excavate the burials, and then there was uh, we had taken input from various uh, indigenous stakeholders on what to do, and there was agreement by most groups that uh, there should be some study of the remains, not everything that could be done, but some some basic analyses. Uh, and so any any difficult feelings that might may have been experienced in that consultation process, a lot of that was really kind of washed away by Chief Waterman's handling of the reburial ceremony. And, and the subsequent uh, feast that took place at, at Grave Creek uh, later. So it was it was a very moving experience, and all, it also led to um, better, I think, better feelings all around after, after as a consequence of the reburial ceremony, uh, and how, and how it was ha- handled. And Chief Waterman really took the lead in that regard. That's an amazing story. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah that kind and of that reburial, if I can just say one other thing, Mark, that reburial sure. uh, took place on October 6, 2001, which was literally about two years after the project started in the first place. So that was that was sort of closing closing the circle in terms of the investigation of the East Steubenville site. Okay. One, and, one thing and, we probably 
add there too was that uh, uh, the, the the folks were reburied not very far away from where they were where they were originally buried, which was mm-hmm. even even a much more interesting uh, experience. You know that that these folks uh, an interesting journey, and then they were brought back. Yep. And, and there's a nice tribute to them on top of the hill. Yeah, that, that's correct. That's right. It's Highland Hill Cemetery. Mm-hmm. It, it, um, I think the uh, spheres are an appropriate symbol, you know, like what John was saying. You know, it's, you know everything comes back to circle. Uh, you know, they really didn't go too far. Um physically from from where they were uh living and you know, uh, uh interred and uh, you know and you see it, it it's uh it really is a moving tribute to the people that lived there uh 4000 years ago they got to they got to keep the same view that they had uh, just mm-hmm. a little further up the ridge, you know, but, uh, and, and that, uh, me personally, still pretty good. Yeah. So, uh, Jonathan, with, yeah, this, uh, you know, fantastic book that, you know, so, so many people, uh, Contributed to, um, I think it, it, it's really a uh, pioneering uh, publication. Do, do you feel that the way you envisioned producing this book started? Uh, some trends in publication? Well, I think um, everyone involved in the project uh, was intent on doing doing the best job with research, both in the field and act afterwards in the uh, laboratory analysis. Everyone was very committed to Doing the best job possible, and um, there was there was sufficient funding to bring in spe- analytical specialists. Uh, people identified uh, uh, charred plant remains of paleobotanist Justine McKnight, Sissy Pipes, a person who identified the uh, animal bone recovered at the site, Stephen Thomas, uh, another faunal analyst who analyzed the fish remains from the site. Uh, staff at GAI who studied the studied the artifacts. Lisa worked with Harold Rollins, uh, a malacologist at University of Pittsburgh, um, and uh, there are just a whole bunch of uh, individuals who con- contributed to the success of the project. And that was uh, both uh, because of the individual commitment of each of the each of the persons working on the project. It was due to the support of Division of Highways, West Virginia Division of Highways, as well as the Historic Preservation Office. Uh, 
Um, and so I think um, when when there's sufficient support and and uh, and commitment, you can. I think it shows that you can you can produce some really good research in an applied context, which is what cultural resource management is. It's not. It's conducting studies within an impact zone, whether it be a gas pipeline right-of-way or a, a new road alignment or or any any other number of impacts and and uh, you can you can do, you can achieve some really good things in terms of research results that provide windows into the collective past of, of West Virginia that are are important in the long run and give us give us a better understanding of past life ways and perspective Okay. Well, since, since you were just talking about per perspectives, uh, you know, you're, you have some aerial photography uh, from uh, looks like an airplane. You know, pe people are just using their own personal drones uh, 20 years later. But you know, you, you, you do include uh, aerial photography that uh, gives a new understanding of, you know, the top of the hills uh, fairly level, and, and as you go east, uh, it's a little bit hilly, but it's not the same uh, you know, back-breaking approaches, um, marching up the hill, carrying a bag of uh you know shells but uh, right. yeah but you know your photography uh from you know various angles you know uh, you know the uh i assume you probably uh took took one shot from the mingo junction Exit on or en entrance ramp onto uh, Route Seven uh, for like a side view of the hill and on, you know the smokestacks in front of it and you know the aerial photography, uh, you know, the color coded maps that show the uh, density of artifacts. So it, you know you're incorporating uh, all kinds of. Uh, Higher you know, resolution uh, photography, uh, aerial photos. You, you know, you're giving. Yeah, we the we were using. Yeah, we were using some some new methodologies there. I mean, today mm -hmm. you can use a drone and and get easily get aerial views of an archaeological site back then. Of course, 20 years ago we didn't have drones, uh, but we did. I went up in a little single prop plane and took uh, took overviews of the site and that gives you gives you a good perspective of that but this is actually one of the first sites where we were using electronic survey equipment called total stations and what that did was that allowed us to um, <clears throat> lay out uh, lay out our, our our archaeological grid to guide our excavations but also to create uh, provenience data the locations of where artifacts were being recovered and then we use that data uh, 
coupled that data with geographic information uh, or GIS technology to produce distributional maps, electronic distributional maps, to show uh, where artifacts and different kinds of uh, food remains were being found, as well as the different kinds of uh, pit features and burials were found in relation to the midden. And prior to that, a lot of that work was being done by hand, but suddenly we were incorporating a lot of electronic technologies, which are standard today, but they were pretty new. Uh, back in 1999 and 2000. So uh, there were some uh, new facets to the way we were doing archaeology uh, that hadn't hadn't been used before. And, and on sites of such such size, uh, like East, East Steubenville and the site just north of it, Highland Hills, those kinds of technologies make it easier to understand spatial patterning and, and to and to illustrate it as a way to better understand uh, what what was going on at the at, at the site. You know, you know what, Mark? I want to say What's something. That? I want to say something about about John Lothrop because he won't say it, so I will. Uh, John has kind of always been at the at the forefront, uh, you know, and he's he's led us that way too. Uh, you know, he's led our led us to, to to understand and incorporate some of these technologies. So John would never would never say that about himself. So so I'll say it that he's he's always been, at least I believe, he's always been at the head of the game. Well, thank you, John. <laughs> you taught me a lot. Okay. Well, uh, uh, that, yeah. Uh, 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 that leads. Leads into uh, one of the questions I was hoping to get to. Um, might as well do it now. So, uh, you know, Lisa, how did this experience, uh, you know, help you to uh, develop this career you have going in archaeology and you know? Uh, Marina is supposed to be listening, so um, uh, she she's on a dig right now. Uh, Hi, Marina. As well, so yeah, she's continued <laughs> her career. Uh, and, and I can ask you know, John if he's found anything over in uh, Fort Steuben since they have an ongoing uh, dig as well. So you know, my my question is. Uh, how, how how did this experience 20 years ago Lise, help you today? Lise, you go first. <laughs> okay. Um, so working at the East Dumaville site was really an amazing experience. I mean, we were there from, I don't know, the dead of winter through the heat of summer back into – almost the dead of winter. <laughs> and it was just like we made it through the whole excavation process. Even on the cold, snowy days, we had our shelters. We had ways to keep warm. We had our little propane heaters, you know, and even the blazing hot summer days, you know, seeking shade like where we could whenever we were stripping the site. There was just... um. There was a lot of, like, really 
great fun that we had out there, and we did it, like, in a way that was just very, I felt very smart. And every day that I was out there, I felt like I was learning something new, and I really felt like I was contributing to something like the greater good. Um, you know, because like John was saying, that that site was going to be destroyed one way or another um, because of the highway project. And we were there getting information from it and doing it the best way we could. Um, you know, so that, that part of it, the field work part of it was really great. I got to learn so much out there. I got to use the total station um, for mapping, and John helped me with that, John Bullage. <laughs> and I would, you know, use the total station and collect data with, with that. And then whenever we got back into the lab, I mean, I think we probably worked maybe three years, like, doing lab work and analysis after the year of excavation out there. So we learned a lot about, like, um, the artifacts that we were recovering and with me working with Harold Rollins and um, learning about the shell and doing habitat reconstruction and how, like, the different databases that you want to find and report on. Like, the whole thing just, like, opened my eyes to what can be done after you're done in the field. So working with the shell and also with the um, with the faunal remains kind of put me on a path to uh, learn more about zooarchaeology. And um, it was just great. And, like, beyond that, I got to experience, you know, leading crews and continuing to do the kind of work that we did at Follinsby. And still to this day, I use, like, the information that I used at Follinsby to, like, build my projects. So, um, you know, as far as the field work goes, I kind of model what I do after what I learned from working at Follinsby. So it still helps me on, like, my projects now. But it definitely changed, like, my path because at the time, Four weeks. I think the, I was told the project was going to last four weeks. <laughs> they're like, we have four weeks of work for you. It's real close to your house. Do you want to do it? And I was like, sure, this will be great. And um, that four weeks turned into another four weeks and another four weeks, and it just kept rolling. So, you know, I learned a lot about data control and, like, having, like, solid methodology for whenever you enter the field, having a good game plan so that you can build on that data so that whenever you get out of the field, you can look at it and make sense out of it. I know that sounds like a real simple thing. <laughs> like, of course, that's what you do. But if you, if you don't have that methodology set up in the beginning, it's kind of, kind of a nightmare whenever you get out of the field. <laughs> So it definitely put me on a, on a different path because I wasn't sure at the time that I was going to stay in archaeology. But that project really, really helped me kind of figure out what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. How about okay. you, John? Jo <laughs> well, 
Uh, you, you know, there were so many things that have helped helped mold where I went with with archaeology. And once again, like Lisa said, a lot of that stems from me too. And one of the things that that I really enjoyed, and one of the things that I took with me, aside from the two lids of the PI that was on the job, uh, was that also there was this. Uh, met some of the most interesting people that you could ever imagine. And I, I, I laugh and joke, and, I, and, and these people who were there were represented some of the best field people around. I don't know this fact, but I often wonder, and probably shouldn't answer this, John, but I often wonder if they were hand-picked, uh, which, you know, wouldn't be right to do. But having said that, a lot of these people represented excellent field archaeologists. And to get a chance to work with them and to see how they worked and to see how they did things was a, a huge benefit for me because, you know, I, I, I had worked for some other companies. And uh, some of the people I met in various other companies, the caliber of quality may or may not have been high, <laughs> you know. But the folks that I met at, at East Steubenville, uh, I learned so much from watching them and not just watching them, but interacting with them. And I had the opportunity to work with, with several people up there as partners, in, including Lisa. And, you know, you just learn so much and incorporate their techniques with your techniques. And I'd like to hope that some of them may have learned some things from me, but, you know, that isn't as important to me as, as watching and learning, uh, you know, different, different ideologies. And so that, to me, was incredibly valuable. And... The other part of that is in my current career, I deal with lots of similar individuals, all with various uh, personalities, some great, some not so great. And, uh, you know, working up there in all those conditions, hot, cold, rainy, snowy, wet, muddy, uh, poison ivy covered <laughs> test units, uh, working in those conditions and learning how to move around various personalities, uh, you know, to all accomplish the same goal, I think is, is is a very important skill that I brought with me out of there. So that's not the kind of thing you think of when you think of archaeology is, is your people uh, communication skills. But, you know, man, you need that. <laughs> you need that in this field, uh, you know, because ultimately a lot of what I do, at least in my or my, my end of the archaeological spectrum, is I, I, I refer to myself oftentimes as a bureaucratic archaeologist. I deal with a lot of people who may or may not understand the importance of archaeology. So I, I learned a lot from working with those individuals. Okay. So, so what are you observing at Fort Steuben? Uh, Phil Fitzgibbons was on uh, WTOV uh, a couple of weeks ago talking about uh, a new dig they have going on. They're finding some colonial bottles and that kind of, uh, you know, so, uh, uh, stuff, some pottery. Uh, uh, what's going on uh, Fort, with, with the summer's dig? So Fort Steuben is a pretty interesting place to conduct historic archaeology uh, because, you know, there is uh, – you, you've got all the time frames kind of represented. We have a prehistoric component there as well as the early – uh, you know, colonial slash federalist period slash on up through uh, the Civil War, post uh, post Civil War, World War One, World War Two, on up to modern day. Uh, 
all of those uh, those time periods are, are available uh, for for analysis there at at Fort Steuben's uh, excavations. So it, it's really interesting that uh, you know a, a lot of the fort related material is. Uh, for, for understandable reasons, the fort wasn't occupied for all that long. So those materials are, have a tendency to, to be relatively scarce and, and uh, not as not as easy uh, come by, easy to come by. But a lot of the other material really shows the growth and the expansion that Steubenville, uh, how Steubenville expanded, grew throughout the early time period, and you can see that the way the industries flourished. And then you can even see it kind of come to an end, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of. So it's a really good place to conduct that that kind of work, and also too, uh, being that it's a, a, a teaching facility, it's really it's really interesting there as well because the materials in historic archaeology, in that aspect, at, at Fortune, historic archaeology are, are artifacts. That you can write. So if someone who hasn't uh, doesn't have a background in, in archaeology or you're volunteering, it's easy for you to recognize a lot of those artifacts because they're things that are kind of contemporaneous with your own life. Uh, oftentimes we find folks that are, that are fresh into the field that have a, have a difficult time identifying uh, a lot of prehistoric artifacts because they just haven't had the experience going over those materials time and time and time again. And uh, in Fort Steuben, it, it, that's, that's not as huge of a deal. Although sometimes, you know, you obviously something's a piece of metal. It's what that piece of metal may have been used for, for example, sometimes becomes more problematic. So, and then we, when we fall back into those artifacts that sort of date to the time of the fort, uh, you know, once again, most of those are, are relatively recognizable, a, a gun flint or a, a military coat button or, or even a coin, uh, you know, an older, an old coin uh, dating to that time period. So, that's kind of, in a nutshell, what goes on there at Steubenville. Uh, professor Fitzgibbons, who was, was also my professor, uh, going up uh, through through the ranks. I worked at Fort Steuben a lot. Now, I, I don't currently work there as an archaeologist, but I do help them out with various uh, various festivals and education programs, uh, giving presentations here and there, as well as doing some of their blacksmithing. <laughs> so, you know, I do, I do have an affiliation with, with Fort Steuben. Okay, and, and Jonathan, uh, you're uh, working on a project uh, now. Is what is your latest project? Uh, well, at, uh, I'm at the New York State Museum, and so my my the, the research that I'm doing now, it's sort of the frame of reference has shifted when I was. Working at GAI, I was working at uh, on archaeological projects and mostly in the Ohio Valley. And now I've shifted to working in, in New York. And I'm instead of these uh, hunter-gatherer populations from five, six thousand years ago, we're studying uh, the earliest uh, Native American peoples to come into the New York region about thirteen thousand years ago in the late Ice Age, uh, and trying to understand how their making a living in what was essentially a subarctic environment and uh, climate and landscape with uh, animals like mastodon and caribou running around uh, the region at that time and, and how they were affected by uh, relatively abrupt climate change at the end of the Ice Age about 11,500 years ago when it goes from 
cold and dry to warm and very dry. Uh, and so that's that's been my my main focus for the last last several years. Okay, and, and Lisa, you've um, done some work in the Allegheny uh, River Valley. Are you uh, noticing any differences, like you know? Between the shells and the two different, there are two different river valleys, but they're still connected. Um, uh, you know, is there any uh, differences, or uh, uh, just a continuation of many of the uh, same traits that you saw in the Upper Ohio River Valley uh, on other, you know, these other projects you've uh, worked on in the Allegheny River Valley? That's a really interesting question. Um, so in terms That's why I paid of... a lot of money to do this. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> um, in terms of the types of shell, like the, the individual little critters that we find, um, it's pretty much the same species that we come across. Um, there will be different amounts. Like with Bolensby, we mm -hmm. had the um, the spike in the elephant ear. But at some of the mm -hmm. other locations, those weren't as common. We would have more of these little um, pleurobema shells. And these pleurobema are more like they're called hickory nuts or pig's toes. Um, so it really... And we also have those at East Steubenville. They just weren't the, the most prominent ones. So there's a you come across the same species, but in different quantities at different locations. So that's where the, the greatest difference is in terms of the actual um, fish that they're shellfish that they're harvesting for food. Um, and then with shell use, um, like the shell pools that we had at East Steubenville were really different than anything I've seen anywhere else. I've come across the shells that have notching in them, but not the notching like we saw at East Steubenville, where it looked like there was something that we call bipolar notching, and that would be notches on um, opposite ends of the shell that looked like it might have been used for hafting, and then the shell edge was used for scraping. So we, we saw that at East Steubenville, but I haven't seen that anywhere else. I've seen the drilled shells that would be used for perhaps pendants or something like that um, at other places, but nothing like the, the scrapers that we identified. If I can just uh, follow up on that, Mark. Uh, so Lisa sure. was originally, after we got out of the field, and after all the archaeological material was processed and cleaned in the lab, Lisa was tasked with uh, analyzing the uh, shellfish remains of the site, working under the uh, guidance of Harold Rollins at University of Pittsburgh. And her her main goals there were to uh, to classify, taxonomically classify the shellfish at the site as as evident and, and as as indicators of what 
specific species that we're going after and then understand it from a habitat perspective, which would provide insight on where the, actual, the shell was actually being gathered and then carried back up to the site. But in the course of doing that work, Lisa pointed out to me that these shells, many of them were actually showed evidence of modification, uh, which is something that had never been identified on a panhandle archaic site in northern West Virginia before. And so some of these shells were being modified perhaps for uh, purposes of personal adornment. They were also being, uh, there's also evidence that they were being used as tools themselves, which was a big surprise, and at first I was very skeptical, but then she was showing me these modifications, and uh, she then supported those uh, identifications through experimental work, uh, replicating the modifications that we were seeing on the shell. So this is really uh, groundbreaking research beyond just the basic biological studies of the shellfish themselves. She was showing that they were actually part of the material culture of these uh, panhandle archaic Native Americans who were living at East Steubenville. And that's just one example of some of the uh, innovative insights that came, came out of the project. And that's all to Lisa's credit. Thanks, John. <laughs> oh, shucks. <laughs> you know, yeah, go, go ahead, John. Oh, no, I was saying I could almost see Lisa blushing. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it, it, okay, so it, you know, one of the uh, interesting things about uh, you know the book, the GAI book on you know the East Steubenville dig was the. Um, uh, Uh, book Fishes of Ohio by Milton Troutman and you, know, you did, did bring up the possibility of the paddlefish uh, possibly uh, you, know, be, you know people fishing for you know those uh, larger type uh, fish uh, you know it's pretty strange looking uh, uh, I don't know like it's almost like some kind of prehistoric uh, fish, but you know there were uh, a, a few harpoons <laughs> found. So, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, these people were uh, doing some serious uh, fishing. That's that's right, and that's again, as I said before, that's one of the distinctive aspects of these of this site and other uh, archaic shellman sites uh, from five to four thousand years ago in the Upper Ohio Valley is that they've they've changed their life way from strictly terrestrial hunting and gathering to turning towards riverine resources, uh, both shellfish and fish. And um, uh, Stephen Thomas did, did the detailed study of the fish bones at the site, and what it what it showed was that they were routinely uh, or primarily catching uh, channel catfish, who was the, the dominant species. And uh, that both that and the studies of other uh, food remains at the site gave gave uh, gave insights into the seasonality of encampments at the site. So. 
what Stephen uh, did was he looked at uh, uh, an incremental growth ring analysis on the vertebrae of these channel catfish. It's like uh, tree rings, and he was able to determine uh, that uh, these fish were being taken in their early rapid growth phase in the warm season, and that would have been late spring to early summer. Uh, and so that that told you that uh, that time of year, late spring to early summer, that made sense because that's when these channel cat, catfish are spawning and often they get caught in floods uh, up onto river terraces and they can be literally harvested after getting caught on, on uh, river terraces that get flooded in these spring floods. And there are other, other food remains, the, um, the uh, shellfish that uh, Lisa studied, um, uh, the assumption is that they would have been harvested primarily in the summer and early fall when the river, instead of at the spring, when it's at its high level in the uh, summer, early fall, then it's at its lowest level, and that's when it's easiest to harvest um, uh, shellfish uh, that are living on these uh, uh, riffles in what would have been the Ohio River would have been a, a shallower river back then. Uh, but the, this, the contrast to this is the um, faunal remains, the animal bone remains, and the botanical remains that were recovered at the site. So, for example, the uh, plant remains that uh, Justine McKnight identified, they were dominated by um, carbonized hulls of black walnut and hickory, as well as carbonized seeds, and then uh, fleshy uh, fruits like cherry, elder sumac, grape and blackberry and all these all these plant foods would have been harvested from late summer into fall and then conversely the animal uh, uh, terrestrial animal remains at the site uh, that were analyzed by sissy pipes they were heavily dominated by white-tailed deer not, not a surprise there but that provided other seasonal insights into occupations at the site. They were most likely would have been hunted in the late fall. And so what that tells you is that these people, the, the inhabitants of the East Steubenville site were coming here in the spring and early summer for, for fishing of channel catfish in the summer and early fall. They were collecting shellfish. Uh, and in the summer and fall, they're harvesting wild fruits and grains and nuts. And in the fall and the winter, they're deer hunting. So it isn't evidence that the people are living there year-round, but they're strategically coming back to the site in all these different seasons to harvest these different food resources. Uh, and so it gives you an understanding of how the site's being used at different times in the year and, and uh, gives you a, a more complex perspective on how these people are making a living 5,000 years ago in the Upper Ohio Valley. You know, you know something, Mark, too, what, what John said, uh, one thing we, we tend to not think about, uh, think about the way people uh, utilize those resources, was we never think about what people liked. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you got to put that human spin on it. And it's really interesting. You had mentioned paddlefish. Lisa had mentioned, mm -hmm. like, what, 14 species of, of mussel. But two, two species of mussel were predominant as well as 
catfish uh, being the most predominant species. Now, some of that may have been because, you know, perhaps those other species were easy to get to or whatever. But we have to stop and think that maybe those things uh, represented uh, preferred foods, just like nowadays, you know. Nobody wants to eat their vegetables, but everybody's going to eat their cheese. And I really, a lot, times, you know, a lot of times when we see you know, these, now granted, you know, if you're starving, you're going to eat anything, and, and we do that now. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, to put that human spin on it, that, uh, you know, that these are people and these, these are people that did stuff, you know, they, they had, they did exactly like us. They, you know, had the same kind of ideal, I, well, maybe not the same ideology, but they were just like us biologically. And you know, uh, I always like to, to kind of liken those 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 predominant species as as maybe the more preferred species, uh, you know, uh, and not uh, not species by chance, like say maybe the paddlefish or you know something like that. Uh, you come by, yeah, it's big fish are going to eat it, and maybe it just didn't taste as good as those channel cats. So you know, and that's what we keep coming back to. But that's just uh, conjecture on my part. No. Oh, it makes sense, and it, they had. Uh, it seems other than uh, you know, bivouacs uh, on the hillside, on top of the hill, you know, wherever wherever they set up their homes. Uh, you know, aside from that, it, it, it seems like the only uh, you know, man-made structure. There was a uh, smoke rack, and you know, uh, one of the people who's uh, really interested in uh, listening to this show, uh, you know, Laura. Uh, you know, you know, I told Laura, yeah, that. It's positioning on the west side of the hill. Seems like it, 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 it's all set up to you know, keep the uh, embers uh, uh, going uh, for food, uh, you know, pre- preparation. You know, I told her, you know, it's probably very similar to the air fryer that you're famous for using. So, uh, it, I don't know if she's going to uh, boycott the show for that, that comment, but it it, it really it does sound like they had you know, that invention kind of getting started uh, like five thousand years, you know, four or five thousand years ago. Uh, I. You know, I, I will say this, that uh, whatever their proclivity was for choosing the site, and, you know, John may want to chime in on that as well, but certainly I can attest that uh, during the summer it was warm up there. <laughs> you know, uh, springtime was relatively pleasant. But there always did seem to be a breeze, and that breeze got to be uh, very annoying uh, when it got cold out. So, you know, especially after the, the – you know, the, in the final stages of of, of our project, you know it, the, that wind was was cold. <laughs> it was very cold. It was brutal. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> okay, and yeah, you know, ju- you know we uh, uh, 
unfortunately, we only have, have like 20 more minutes left. But yeah, you know, uh, uh, John, didn't want to get get into your uh, uh, tour last week of uh, you know Barnesville's uh, track rocks. Uh, yeah, that's a lot more recent than the East Steubenville site, but it, it does show uh, how long the, the Native American population was living in the uh, greater Ohio Valley. Um, it, it, what was you know, for you know, for the listeners, uh, it, can, could you explain uh, the importance of the track rocks and what they would have uh, been meaning with these uh, petroglyphs? How do we read them? What what are they saying to us? Well. Uh, you know, ultimately, it's impossible to put ourselves in the mind of that that prehistoric person who, who inscribed those rock petroglyphs, you know, 800 uh, plus uh, years ago. So it's really difficult to know exactly what they're saying. But uh, you know, one thing that they are saying is that hey, we were here. Uh, you know, that that's that's evident. Uh, many people have interpreted track rocks as being a place, an education place. Uh, you know, someplace to, to teach and talk about the various types of animals or perhaps clans that, you know, might be associated with those animal tracks. Track Rock's got its name from the uh, the abundance of, of animal tracks that are, that are incised into the rocks. There's turkey tracks, bear tracks, human tracks, uh, elk, deer, uh, you know, uh, in various places across the rocks, as well as lots of other uh, symbols uh, and, and uh, various things, uh, some snakes and things like that across, across the rock. So that's how, it, that's how it got its name. It's, it's probably one of the, in my humble opinion, it's probably one of the better petroglyph sites in Ohio. Uh, and it's, uh, it, it, is, it is currently owned and, and managed by the Archaeological Conservancy. So it is private property. Uh, you know, you can't go up there, uh, you know. But there are, there are folks interested in, in eventually having that open to the public, so, so we'll see. But anyway, so yeah, Track Rocks itself is an interesting array of large tabular pieces of sandstone that are lying on a very high ridge, uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere, uh, that uh, that uh, were very attractive to these folks uh, because, I believe, because they are like a great big table, and it's very easy to stand around that table and see those tracks on, on those rocks. So I... I think that that might have been the, the initial, initial reason why people went there. Now, the reasons and the meanings behind the inscriptions, you know, like I said, I, I don't know that we will ever know that. We can we can make attempts at interpretation. And, uh, you know, I like in those areas, many people will say those areas are ceremonial or, or cultural, uh, and perhaps is a better term. But And then they ask, they ask, what are these places for? And I always kind of liken them to churches. Uh, you know, we go to church. Uh-huh not just to pray, but oftentimes we go to church for spaghetti dinners, for bingo, for weddings, uh, you know, flea markets, you know, so they're not necessarily. Yeah, exactly. They're a linchpin 
for your for your group, for your society, for your community. And and I I, I look at Track Rocks as being one of those linchpins, uh, you know, someplace that that kept that community anchored, uh, you know, someplace to to go and and uh, you know, be who they were. John, is there a strategic aspect to the location of the Track Rocks in terms of the surrounding landscape? Not. No, it doesn't appear to be, meaning that uh, it's actually quite high above the nearest creek, uh, which is a small uh, a small little tributary. It's actually, a, oh, I'd say it's much higher than, uh, it's, it's at least in the 300-foot uh, distance above that creek, but it's also quite a ways back the ridge system. Uh, to my knowledge, there's there's no other forms of, uh, forms of water around. It seems to be sort of an isolated location. The most interesting thing about it is is because those rocks seem to outcrop there and not on any of the uh, the adjacent ridges, uh, at least that we're aware of, uh, the area had been actually heavily strip mined in the 40s and 50s, so there may very, very well have been other locations. People there, and this is the, the only one that's still extant. Uh, however, there there is a rock shelter very close by, uh, a large rock shelter that's on private property, and I've yet to gain access to that uh, to see that. That may very well have brought people there as well. But I will also note that scattered in around in and around the area, there are some other late prehistoric uh, um, archaeological sites, including one that's a national register uh, uh, national on the national register called the Tower Site which is probably, as the crow flies, about uh, two miles away, uh, you know, so that that may have some relevance as well. But, no, any other sort of, uh, aside from the fact that those rocks just don't seem like they should be there, uh, would make it such an interesting location. Hmm. Yeah, they, they seem like they were just kind of dumped out in a field, that's exactly what it looks like. Uh, you know, there's just a series of really large sandstone tablets, uh, you know, uh, in, in laying in this particular area. So it's uh, it's pretty interesting. And and like I said, the 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 uh, the petroglyphs on them themselves are are really really uh, interesting. Um, like I said, you, you also get a, a few drawings of faces. Uh, as well, but but the tracks are, are certainly the thing that uh, that stands out the most. Okay, and, very interesting. It's a neat place. It it really is, and uh, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, one of the things that I find, and you know, I'm very passionate about sharing archaeology with people. And archaeologists, and you know, John and Lisa will attest to this, when you put us in a room and usually uh, you know, imbibe us with beer, we will talk for hours and hours about archaeology. And we will pontificate and we will argue and we will you know, basically tell each other we're wrong or we're right or we'll agree or disagree. But in the end, we're, we're archaeologists talking to archaeologists. And that's not terribly interesting for people like everyday folks. Uh, you know, yeah, they're interest. Everybody's interested in archaeology, but sometimes we have a habit to uh, we have a we have that bad habit of only speaking archaeology. And one of my passions is to speak English and translate archaeology. So I'm really passionate about sharing archaeology and prehistory and primitive. Uh, I, I hate that term. That's not the right term. Past life ways with 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 folks. Uh, you know, how did these people make a living? And, and not so much. Uh, 
concentrate on a lot of the uh, the minutia of of the way we we do things but uh obviously talk about that but talk more about the people uh you know talk more about the the, the prehistoric people and how they did things uh you know and, and i find that a lot of people are, are really interested in that and that's kind of something that i've kind of taken up uh maybe perhaps uh, on on my own uh you know sharing and talking with people i give a lot of presentations about such things and uh you know that that's that's something i'm very very passionate about is that if we want our be important and preserved, we have to talk to people who aren't other archaeologists. And, uh, you know, like I said, Lisa and John and myself, uh, you know, we do that a lot. But uh, I think it's something that other archaeologists uh, need to get more comfortable with and understand that while, you know, these people, uh, normal everyday folks, are interested in archaeology, they just don't speak archaeologist. Uh, you know, and we use different terminology to explain different things, and and I think that uh, we're a lot of archaeologists are missing opportunities to to share our passions uh, about this about this field. Indeed. And, and uh, Lisa, you uh, ha- have also been on the lecture circuit as well. Sure. And you have yep. a. a uh, Great presentation on Betty Broyles. Uh, you, you know, since you know we only have like ten, eleven minutes left, uh, can you give us a synopsis of her importance to archaeology and her influence on you? Yeah. So um, Betty Broyles was an archaeologist who worked. Um, all over the eastern United States. Uh, She did a lot of work in the southeast, but most of her work was in West Virginia. And she came up in the 50s, and she did a lot of work in the 50s and 60s when there weren't a lot of other women uh, doing archaeology. And she encountered some uh, difficulties early in her career when she was working at the Illinois State Museum. Um, She was told that she could be on a field crew, but she could never lead a field crew. Uh, So shortly thereafter, she got a job in West Virginia and eventually became the state archaeologist for West Virginia. And her work at the State Alban or the St. Albans site um, produced one of the best sequential um, projectile point typologies um, that we have right now. And a lot of the typologies that we use, a lot of the way we date um, artifacts is somewhat based on what she found. And one of the things that, like, I had always heard of, like, whenever I was working, um, you know, in the field and as a technician early on in my career was I'd heard about St. Albans points all over the place, but I had never, like, knew where they, where they were named from or who was involved in naming them or any of that until much later in my career, and that's how I became acquainted with with Betty Broyles, but that that typology that was created from this 
um, archaeology because it had a very clear sequence and it was also supported by um, radiocarbon dating. So you have the points in a very clearly stratified site, like the layers were very clear um, and isolated, and you have radiocarbon with it. So that's one of the one of the things that like I found to be very important and very few people, at least as far as like as far as I knew, um, in terms of like technicians and people out in the field didn't really know where that information came from, didn't attribute it to Betty and to know how difficult it was for her to become a state archaeologist and the, the events in her career that led her there. So she did a lot of work in West Virginia, and um, it's really interesting because when I was researching her life, I came up um, across an article that was right next to an article about her, and it was about another woman who was a professional. She was a professional engineer in Colorado, and at the same time, this woman in Colorado had been fighting for two years to access her project where she was the lead engineer for building a tunnel. And the and she had to fight in court to be allowed to go into the project area. And the first day she goes into the project area, the entire crew left because she was there. And meanwhile, right next to that article is this article – So it was just a very interesting thing to think about, you know, the the things that she had to encounter and the things that other women were encountering at that time to be professional, to be somebody in science, and to be accepted as an equal. So, yeah, so Buddy's kind of one of my personal heroes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you gave a... Uh, captivating lecture on her uh, a few months ago. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I also oh. talk a lot about the shell from East Steubenville. I usually I have usually have like one talk a year about that. So, <laughs> so it'll be okay. coming up again soon. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, your talk tonight was uh, – equally as informative and uh uh jonathan what are you know, do you have a new publication coming out soon uh you know, your paleo uh point article was uh really you know, I had a chance to you know, uh, skim through a little bit of it uh today uh but i i enjoyed it uh are you you know working on something else uh for uh publication soon or you know you're just doing something at the uh a museum yes um actually i i do and um it's it's in a sense a so I'm working in New York State, and back in 1965, the former state archaeologist Bill Ritchie published a book called The Archaeology of New York State, and that's 
several decades ago now, and I recently contributed a chapter to a a, a, a reset of our understanding of New York State Archaeology and Center. So I wrote a synthetic chapter on the earliest peoples in the region these, that archaeologists call Paleoideans, these uh, Native Americans that came into the region during the Ice Age. And so that's a chapter that's forthcoming. It's going to be coming out this fall in a uh, open access book um, that will be available for free on the uh, New York State Museum website through their publication series called the New York State Museum Record. And so that synthesizes uh, the current information we have on these uh, in terms of archaeological evidence for these earliest peoples in the New York region. So that's coming out later this year. And I would expect that by December that will be available for, for download for free. Wow. Okay. I'll have to look for that. Um, it's, it, it's, so if people are uh, looking for something to do for the second half of the summer, uh, they can stop at Fort Steuben, see John on the weekends, and what, uh, what else is going on in Albany uh, at, at the New York State Museum? Uh, well, we we do uh, archaeological excavations there. Our, my colleague Michael Lucas, the historical archaeology curator, is working on a a free black uh, farmstead called the Powell Site, and he's been con conducting field work on that. And uh, we're at, we're actually working or have been working on a Paleo-Indian site, a twelve and a half thousand year old site in the. Mohawk Valley near Utica, New York, uh, called the Corda Tape site, and uh, we were there in May and just finished up some field work uh, last week and might be going back there in the fall, and people can volunteer for that as well if they're interested. Wow. Okay. Neat stuff. Uh, Lisa, how about you? What, uh, what do you have going on now once you get back from vacation? Well, I actually have um, a bunch of field work going on right now, uh, and we're doing um, phase one archaeology for, that's the shovel test pits um, for a site in Mercer County, and we are also doing a um, architectural survey for underrepresented properties in western Pennsylvania. So, okay. yeah, so, it's really interesting, so, exciting stuff. Sounds like it. Okay. So, um, you know, we ha have like 90 seconds left. Um, you know, I guess we can pro probably start wrapping things up there. Uh, but, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Lisa said this was a great reunion, and it, it, it sounded like, yeah, you could just tell by your voices that you enjoyed um, reminiscing. And I thought I thought it was a terrific show. I, and, you know, thank you so much for being part of Nightlight and helping me with, you know, my – my projects as well. This you know, just been a uh, perfect uh, 
collaboration, and we'll have to do this again sometime soon. I thought it was uh, a, a wonderful evening with the three of you as our panel of experts. Thanks for organizing it, Mark. We really enjoyed it. Yeah, we okay. really, great. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yes, thank you for you're, the invitation. Yeah. Oh, th- th- thank you. It was you. wonderful to and, talk with everyone. I, I'm sure the listeners got a lot out of it. So, uh, hey, uh, Barbara has a great show lined up for tomorrow, and we'll see everyone at noon tomorrow with Andrew Collins.